Hello from the newsroom of the Financial Times in London, I'm Josh Noble. In this podcast, which is supported by the European Federation of Pharmaceutical Industries and Associations, we're looking at the science of gene editing. Last year, a Chinese scientist shocked the world by disclosing that he had created the world's first gene-edited babies. And Jana Ahuja talks to Robin Lovell-Badge, a developmental biologist and geneticist, about the controversy and about the potential for easy-to-use gene-editing tools such as CRISPR-Cas9 to revolutionise diagnostics, drug discovery and the treatment of disease. Everybody has become very familiar with the story of the gene-edited babies that came out from China last year. So these were apparently the world's first gene-edited babies created. It really triggered a scandal. Do we know what's happened to the scientist and or to the twin baby girls that have been born? We know nothing new, particularly. Jean-Q Hay, I'll just refer to him as JK, is currently in Shenzhen, where his university is. In fact, I think he's in an apartment owned by the university. And the stories in the Chinese press that there are guards, what we don't know is who those guards are, whether they're university guards, police, whoever they are. We don't know whether he's under house arrest or whether he's free to move around. He actually emailed me and said he's all fine. So the impression is, I think he's trying to give me that he's not under arrest. So the guards may be there to protect him, because I know he was receiving threats during the big conference that we had. So that's all I can say. He's fine. And Do uh, we know about the welfare of the twin girls, Lulu and Nana? That's a big concern. We know nothing about that. JK himself was very keen to stress that their privacy should be maintained and that they should be protected and that identity not known and all of this, likewise, their parents. There is an investigation being launched in China by the Ministries of Sciences and Ministry of Health, and they presumably will want to find out whether what he is claimed to have done is actually the case, and so they would need to take DNA samples from the two babies and the parents. But I hope they do it in a sensitive way. These are just two little babies they should be treated just as that and not subject to anything bad at all. They have novel mutations in this gene, CCR5, which is known in some cases to confer protection. Mutations in that gene can confer protection against HIV, and that was the rationale behind the work that JK did, was to try and make these children immune, if you like, to HIV because having HIV in China, or even being a member of a family where one of the family members has HIV, as in this case, it's treated very badly. The families are stigmatized. The children wouldn't be allowed to play with other children simply because of that, for example. So they're ostracized. That's another reason why the identity needs to be protected because of that situation too. But what we hope is that they will be treated as two normal little girls, and that's it. They have mutations in the gene. They're novel mutations because of the way he did the genome editing quite poorly. We have no idea what those mutations will do. But all of us have mutations. Every new generation, there are 40 to 80 new mutations in our genome. So just treat them like normal children. Keep a watching eye on them, see what happens. So watch this space on the gene-edited babies story. But of course, 
Most scientists involved in genome editing, as you prefer to call it, are not involved in trying to change the course of human evolution by creating these genetic mutations or changes that will then be passed on down the family line. As I understand it, the real excitement for genome editing is in the lab, working with adult patients, perhaps with single gene disorders, also excitement with drug discovery and so on. So let's talk about that because I know that you're involved as a developmental biologist in the R&D side of things. What does your work focus on at the Crick? We have a number of projects, in fact many projects, but let me just say about one of them. Genes have two parts to them. They have the part that encodes the protein, it's going to do its job for it, but it also has a part that controls when and where that gene is active. So not all genes are active in all cells all the time. They are cell type specific and they can be stage of development specific. They can be only active at a particular time in the embryo or in the adult. We've been using the genome editing methods to try and understand, dissect, if you like, this regulatory region for some genes and one in particular called SOX9. So SOX9 is a gene that has many roles in developing embryo. But one we've been working on for a long time is its role in sex determination, so whether you become male or female. SOX9 is really critical to give rise to the development of testes, a particular cell type that's critical for making testes. So mutations in SOX9 can lead to sex reversal to give XY female development instead of male development. But it's a really complex gene that's active in many different cells. And it turns out that it has an enormous regulatory region, which is really complex, and we wanted to try and dissect that. So you have specific sequences you can refer to as enhancer sequences where other proteins, transcription factors, interact with those to tell the gene to be active or silent. And so we had found using a variety of methods a number of candidate regulatory regions or enhancers for SOX9 in the process of making testes. And we had about 32 different candidates that we started with and we used a number of methods to try and reduce that number down. We came down to four that looked like they were very promising. And we used the genome editing methods to inactivate each of those enhancers in turn, to basically delete each of those regions of DNA in turn, and found one of them, which is located a very long distance away from the protein coding part of the gene itself, something like 650,000 base pairs away, which is a big distance. When we deleted that particular enhancer, it inactivated the gene, so we got XY females. So even though you have this really complex regulatory region spread over many millions of base pairs, and it's stuffed full of different regulatory regions, it turns out that just one was essential for its expression in the early developing gonads so that they could rise to testes. And what's an XY female? They are chromosomally male, so yes, the X and the Y chromosome, one X chromosome but, one but y. they've developed as a female. In this case, in the embryos, they are indistinguishable from normal females. So they have um, female genitalia. They have female genitalia. They develop as they, biologically as women. They have they, ovaries. Well, they're mice, not women, but they so. develop as females. In humans, of course, yes, you would also have cases where you have XY female development. So they look female, but chromosomally they're male. They will be infertile because the Germ cells, so the eggs, in an XY female don't do very well. They get lost early on, so they will be infertile. But otherwise they look and generally behave and are female. One thing I should ask you to do, Robin, is to explain very briefly 
what CRISPR-Cas9 <laughs> editing is. Can you tell us how the CRISPR-Cas9 genome editing system works? Very briefly, please. Okay. It relies on making breaks in the DNA, usually a double-strand break in the DNA. And to do that, you have an enzyme called Cas9, but you have to have a way of getting that enzyme to the right place in the genome. And that's the guide RNA component. So the RNA, you design it. Part of the RNA is designed to be complementary, so to match up with the DNA sequence that you want to cut. The other part of the RNA, the guide RNA, has a sequence that interacts with the Cas9 enzyme, so the protein. So when you have both together... And CRISPR is that linking? CRISPR, yeah. So CRISPR is a a shorthand term for the guide RNA, it's for the RNA. The name CRISPR comes from origin in bacteria. It's actually not really relevant to its use. So the guide RNA takes the Cas9 enzyme to the right part of the genome. The enzyme then cuts the DNA and processes that occur in all cells to repair broken DNA then jump in and try and repair it. Now, in the simplest form of the technology, you're just making a break in the DNA. You're actually generally making a mutation in a gene. You have a process called non-homology end-joining. Horrible term, but it basically just tries to stick the broken ends of DNA back together again. But often you have a little mistake made, and that can be sufficient to inactivate a gene, which is incredibly useful in the lab for studying gene functions. It's so rapid and easy. Now, if you want to make a more precise alteration in the genome sequence, the DNA sequence, and that can be anything from a single letter up to many, many thousands of letters of code, then you have to use a different DNA repair mechanism called homology-directed repair. This requires a third component to be introduced at the same time, which we confer to as a DNA template. So this has two parts, if you like. At each end, you have a bit of DNA that's complementary, so that's the same as the gene in which you want to target. And then in the middle, you have a sequence that you want to replace the one that's in there already with. And if you have those three components together now, the Cas9 enzyme, the guide RNA, and the DNA template, the homology-directed repair mechanism will now work, and it will substitute what was in your template into the gene. It is quite an incredible technology, isn't it? There's a third method which I want to tell you about, which is really exciting, which is called base editing. Now, this only allows you to change one base pair, one letter, if you like, in the code. But it works without making a double strand cut in the DNA. It changes chemically, if you like, one letter to another. Then its partner also then has to change, otherwise you have a little loop in the DNA. And that relies on a different type of DNA repair mechanism to do that little bit. But given that about half of single gene disorders are caused, in fact, by single base pair changes, mutations in the DNA, this new method looks really promising because it doesn't come with the baggage that some of the other methods have of creating unwanted mutations. So you get just what you want. So it could well be a much safer method, at least when you're dealing with single base mutations. Tell me how genome editing is being used in the lab and perhaps with patients. It's really exploded in basic research, the use of genome editing, in particular the the CRISPR-Cas9 methodology. It's relatively easy to use, that's one reason, and relatively inexpensive to use. But it's just so powerful and so rapid. So we've had 
ways of altering genes in cells in culture or in model animals that we use for research like mice. We had methods to alter genes in them for many years, for decades. But they were always very inefficient, very slow. To make a mouse carrying a specific mutation in a particular gene, it really used to take well over a year to do that. We can now do it in a matter of a couple of months. So it rapidly speeds up the way that we can do research to study the role of specific genes or parts of genes during development, in my case, or for physiology or for brain function or in cancer. It's really speeded up things enormously and made it cheaper. In terms of things like the possibility of using genome editing to treat patients who already have a genetic disease or cancer or something like this, Again, that's really looking incredibly exciting. We've had somatic gene therapy also for decades. Just explain what somatic gene therapy is. Somatic cells are basically any cell in the body apart from the germ cells, the germ cells being those cells that are going to give rise to sperm or eggs that would allow any genetic change to be passed on to subsequent generations. So a typical somatic cell would be a skin cell or a muscle cell or a bone cell or a brain cell. So there are a whole range of genetic diseases that can compromise the ability of particular cells to function or the body to function. Things that affect the blood, like sickle cell disease or beta thalassemia. You have diseases like cystic fibrosis or muscular dystrophy that affect lungs and muscles and other tissues. In many cases, these are due to single mutations, a single gene that's affected by a small mutation affecting that gene. So the genome editing methods can be used to correct gene defects or, in some cases, find ways around of getting another gene to become active to replace the gene that's not working. There are now probably around 20 or so clinical trials that have been launched using the genome editing methods to try and treat individuals who have genetic diseases of this sort, so single gene defects. That was science columnist Anjana Ahuja talking to Robin Lovell-Badge, head of the Laboratory of Stem Cell Biology and Developmental Genetics at the Francis Crick Institute. And if you'd like to listen to the full interview, look out for our weekly technology show, Tectonic, which comes out on Wednesdays. This podcast is part of the FT Health Series Future of Research and Development, found at ft.com forward slash rdhealth. We'll be back with another news feature tomorrow. In the meantime, if you're not already a subscriber and would like to discover more FT content, take a look at our latest subscription offer at ft.com forward slash offer.